And while you're while you're doing that, I might um, formally kick off tonight's event. Um, so my name's Talara, and I'm the Public Programs Coordinator here at the Institute of Modern Art. And before I go any further, I would just like to acknowledge the traditional owners that we um, of the land that we live, work, and play on here in here in Brisbane, um, the Yuggera and Turrbal people. And I'd like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and future and the really invaluable role that First Nations people play in the arts. Um, so thank you and thank you to all of you as well for joining us today. Um, we're joined by Anthony Lowenstein um, and also Kadim Ali um, for this lecture. And I guess a background um, on Afghanistan as we're coming up to the, the 20th anniversary. So this lecture is programmed beside Kadim Ali's show here at the IMA. It's on show until the 5th of June. Um, many of you from all over the world, I can see in the Amazing. chat box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah. I'm, I'm really glad that we're able to provide this program for you to kind of get a, a little taste of, um, of the program here at the, at the IMA in Brisbane. Um, there's probably not much else I would like to add, um, apart from introducing Anthony before he kicks off. Um, so Anthony is a journalist who's written for the New York Times, The Guardian, the BCC, The Washington Post, The Nation, Huffington Post, Haritz, and many more. His latest book is Pills, Powder and Smoke, Inside the Bloody War on Drugs. He's the author of Disaster Capitalism, Making a Killing Out of Catastrophe, the co-writer and co-producer of the associated documentary, Disaster Capitalism, and the co-director of an Al Jazeera English film on the opioid drug tramadol. His other best-selling books include My Israel Question, The Blogging Revolution, and Prophets of Doom. He's currently working on a major journalistic and art project around the 20th anniversary of the Afghan war. He's visited Afghanistan twice in the last decade to report on the war. So thank you, um, Anthony, for joining us, and I will hand over to you. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us tonight. I'm really wrapped to be here. I thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very happy that I've been invited to do this, and I'll briefly explain what I'm going to do in a minute. But just for those who were interested, at the end of that lovely introduction, it was mentioned I'm working on a, a project on the 20th anniversary of the Afghan war which many people in this space will know is in October this year. And that project involves Kadim amongst other Afghan artists. And I'm happy to talk a bit about that more later, but it's something that will be both journalistic and artistic and will be both late this year and early next year, currently in Australia, but I have visions for it to go further. So that's a work in progress. I wanted to tonight not give a history lesson. Everyone on this call knows the history of Afghanistan probably much better than me. I want to give a bit of context and I'm mostly going to talk about the situation of the last 20 years, especially since 9-11 and both the political realities then and now and how we got to the place we're at. I'm going to speak for about half an hour. I'm not going to speak for the whole hour. Don't worry. There'll be a chance for you to ask questions um, to myself or to Cardin. And this um, conversation, I understand, will be placed online after this. So you'll be able to watch it and share it with other people if you're interested. I wanted to start with 9-11, which of course is also a 20th anniversary this year in September. And when that event happened, 
I was, I'm now 46, so it was obviously 20 years ago, I was in my mid-20s. I was not a professional journalist then. I was living in Melbourne, which for those who don't know is a southern city in Australia. And I think at the time, obviously, it was a shock. It was a shock that it happened. It was a shock that it was able to happen in the heart of the US empire. And almost immediately, it was pretty clear, both by what the Bush administration said and also the mood, including in Australia and, frankly, much of the West is, we have to invade Afghanistan. And although it wasn't a particularly popular view at the time, including on the left, I did not particularly support that war. And that, uh, I won't get into great detail about that. I guess the main reason was I feared and didn't really trust the intentions of the US. This was not because I thought Afghanistan wasn't an incredibly difficult place. I was well aware of the rule of the Taliban. I'm also well aware that many Afghans I've met since, although not all did support the invasion of Afghanistan. And maybe we can talk about that later if it's relevant. But it seemed like there was inevitability of invading Afghanistan. As you're well aware, it happened on the 7th of October, 2001, which is now nearly 20 years ago. And one of the things about it was in most Western countries, it was sold as both a justified war, a moral war, a war that would liberate the Afghan people. It would help Afghan women. This was the rhetoric that was used by President George Bush, and frankly, most Western leaders who engaged in the war. And for me, the scepticism wasn't so much about what Afghanistan was going to go through, it was more knowing recent modern US history and realizing how America often ended up both treating and being treated in places like Vietnam, Cambodia, and during the Cold War. Yes, different situations to be sure, but I would argue that the intentions of the US were never maybe as pure as they had initially suggested. Australia, the country I'm from, I'm actually a dual citizen. I'm, I'm an Australian and a German citizen, but I was born in Australia. Australia, for those who don't know, was 110% behind the war. Australia joined the war. It didn't have a huge number of troops there, but it certainly was involved. And as people on this call probably are well aware, I would say, from my understanding, certainly in Australia, many Afghans I've spoken to since and Afghans in the diaspora, many or most supported the war. As I said, there were some who didn't for a range of reasons, but most did. And I've since spoken to people who were living in Afghanistan in 2001 and indeed before then, and to give a real sense of what life was like there. And I'm under no illusion and people on this call know this better than me. Many people I know were living in Afghanistan at the time. So it's not for me to tell you what your life was like, except to say that I have a friend of mine who was there in 2000 making a documentary. He's an Australian uh, individual. And he went to Bamiyan amongst other places, saw the incredible statues that obviously people will be aware was destroyed by the Taliban before, to, before um, the country was invaded. And really reported on just an a country that was, I remember one thing often struck in my mind was the country was often like flat, meaning not that there weren't hills, meaning that there were very few tall buildings. In fact, they were in Kabul, there were virtually no tall buildings. Um, the country was in incredibly dire shape. And very soon, the US role from invasion shift to occupation. Now, arguably, it was always going to be an occupation, and many Afghans I know have said to me, if the country was just going to be invaded and the US would leave relatively soon afterwards, many of us would have continued to support the war. But alas, alas, it, was, it became an occupation, and as occupations inevitably go, it went south. And for people on this call, again, will know this, the insurgency didn't begin on the day after the invasion, generally. 
for the first number of years, in fact, the war, there was not a great deal of violence. Of course, initially the US invaded and the Taliban were overthrown within roughly three weeks. That was always going to happen because they were compared to the US, they were never going to win that war. But the insurgency started really in force in around 2005. And what became very clear to me as a journalist very quickly was how little in the West, and there are exceptions to this, but in general, how little serious discussion there was of civilian casualties on the Afghan side. There were growing numbers of large numbers of Afghan civilians being killed, both by US forces, by airstrikes, by private contractors, um, by the Taliban, of course, by militants. But it almost seemed like so much of the journalism that I was seeing was um, reporters going over there from, say, Australia, the US, the UK, Europe, embedding with US or foreign forces. And the kind of reporting you get from that is necessarily insular. You are with troops. The troops are protecting you. You feel almost reliant on them for your life. And therefore, your perspective is incredibly narrow. And although there were some exceptions, I recall one journalist who actually embedded with the Taliban, would you believe, not because he supported the Taliban, because he wanted to get the other side. And as a journalist, I've never embedded with the Taliban. I'll get to my trips to Afghanistan shortly. But that to me is a valid thing to do. What does the other side, so to speak, think? What do they feel? What is their attitude? How do they regard and respond to the war? And one thing that I've often looked into in relation to this conflict. I was in Afghanistan in 2012 and 2015. And one area I was investigating particularly was the country's untapped mineral wealth. For those who don't know, when the Soviets invaded in 1979, they discovered relatively quickly there was an unbelievably huge amount of minerals under the ground, minerals such as copper, gold, etc. And as you know, well aware, the Soviets got kicked out about 10 years later and never could really develop that. Fast forward to the US invasion in 2001, fast forward a few years after that, and both the Bush administration, Obama administration, and indeed the Trump administration have been pushing, and indeed I might add the Biden administration, and we'll get to that a bit later, have been pushing this idea that Western corporations have the right and duty to essentially tap Afghan resources. And the amount of money that's under the ground is estimated between one to four trillion US dollars, including rare earths and rare metals that often are used for mobile phones, laptops, et cetera. And what we've seen in the last 15 years or 20 years now since the war has continued, and this is partly what I was doing in the country to investigate this, both in Kabul, but also elsewhere, Logar province, is what that means on the ground. What does it mean for a US and Afghan government and for that matter, foreign governments to actively support the idea of Western and Afghan companies to exploit these resources? And what that practically has meant is unbelievable dislocation and violence. There was a study that came out, in fact, just a few weeks ago by the Afghan Ministry of Mines, which is a deeply corrupt body, but putting that fact aside, they were saying that 75% roughly, of Afghan mines that are currently operating are controlled by militants or non-government forces. So what does that tell you? It tells you that there is an unbelievably huge amount of mineral wealth under the country. And there's an argument, of course, with climate change that one shouldn't be mining the resources at all. But putting that issue aside for a second, what you see is virtually no Afghans benefiting from these resources. And having spent time in some of these mines or near these mines with Afghans, 
during both my trips. I was there, just for those who are interested, working on a book and a film called Disaster Capitalism, which was looking at how people and corporations are making money from misery. And that project was not just set in Afghanistan, it was set in Haiti, it was set in the US, the UK, Papua New Guinea, a country near Australia and, and in Australia. And I was focusing particularly in Afghanistan on both private contractors who are often from the US and the West and Afghanistan and the mineral issue. And to me, what was so striking about visiting Afghanistan in both 2012 and 2015 was the complete dislocation and disconnect between often what was being reported in the Western media, what was happening on the ground. I was there with local Afghans, I local Afghans I've kept in touch with, some of them are still in Afghanistan, some of them are living in the diaspora, in Australia, in the US particularly. And they were assisting me, I was there with some colleagues, some Western colleagues, they were assisting me in looking, investigating this particular question of what's happening to all these resources, who's making the money, and also for the private contractors, for those who don't know, although I'm sure people on this call will, many of them, that there was a massive explosion in private contracting, often violent contracting. So private individuals often who used to be in um, Western armies, US, Australia and elsewhere, then going to be so-called soldiers of fortune, making a lot more money, working for very, very unscrupulous private contractors, often committing war crimes in the process and never being held to account. And we're gonna to get to war crimes a bit later, but I wanted to mention the crimes of private military contractors. There are countless examples some of which I've reported on, of American contractors committing crimes in Afghanistan who were then whisked out of the country by the US embassy in Kabul to never be held account for these crimes in Afghanistan. And I'm well aware the legal system in Afghanistan is pretty broken, but the fact that those people never face justice to me is deeply problematic and contributed in my view and my experience and my reporting to partly why the insurgency grew and grew and grew after all those years. And as a journalist myself, who, as I said, has been to Afghanistan twice, who has remained connected to Afghanistan, who's working on a project now about the 20th anniversary of the Afghan war, the media coverage of this conflict to me has really been central to its fundamental misunderstanding in the West. And you could argue in 2021, not many countries' populations support the war. Most polls show that. I'm talking about Western countries now because the war has become a disaster. But over the many years, certainly early on, and even when the insurgency was raging, so many journalists still took a very, very pro-military, pro-Afghan government, pro-Afghan um, uh, occupation line. Parroted arguments about this war is still to help Afghan women. We're helping Afghan girls get an education. And to be clear, in some parts of the country that has happened, and continues to happen. I've seen it with my own eyes. I'm not denying that. But the war was not launched in 2001 to help Afghan women, regardless of what the US said. That's clearly, frankly, bullshit. And one of, of course, the profound impacts of the war, which has definitely had an impact on the consciousness of much of the world, are Afghan refugees, um, some of whom I'm sure are on this conversation tonight, including Kardim. And the impact of that refugee exodus, which continues to this day, is not just profound, but existential, both to Afghanistan and arguably the West. And what really has struck me time and time and time again, reporting on this issue, both in Afghanistan, 
in Australia, in the US, US and in Europe, is the disconnect between governments that have Western forces in the country and know that the country is not safe, and yet they are forcibly sending Afghan refugees back to danger. The Australian government, government has done that a number of times. The German government is particularly bad at doing this and have done this constantly. And it's outrageous and shameful, and I might it internationally illegal. And one of the things I've done, and this will feature in this Afghan anniversary project I'm working on, is talking and featuring Afghans who have left the country fleeing and then they were forcibly sent back and what their life is like now in Kabul or elsewhere. I mean, some obviously have been killed, as anyone on this call will know, but the ones who have survived often have an incredibly difficult life. And to me, the lack of Western moral um, fortitude about that is so revealing. I won't go into detail about Australia's refugee policy. Suffice to say, it's pretty inhumane. And a lot of Afghan refugees, along with Syrians and Iraqis, not just Afghans, are treated abominably. They're often sent to remote desert prison camps, either on the mainland or in the Pacific. Some have been killed, some are tortured, some are sexually assaulted. Uh, and that to me is one of the great shames of the last 20 years. And this has been going on before 9-11, but particularly since 9-11. And on one level, the war in Afghanistan is not particularly about Afghan refugees who live, for example, in Sydney or Berlin or Paris. And yet to me, that is gonna be part of the legacy. It's how countries that invaded and occupied Afghanistan have taken few, if any, responsibility for Afghan refugees who have fled the country and are now living in various corners of the world. And to be clear, some Afghan refugees obviously are doing well. I'm not saying everyone is living in poverty, they're not, but many are struggling. I'm talking about outside Afghanistan. And obviously within Afghanistan, they're struggling deeply as well. And let me just say a few other points because I wanted to open up to questions soonish. One of the, I think, great, I would argue, unknown questions about this war are the war crimes that were committed by Western forces and, for that matter, Afghan forces in Afghanistan. And there have been remarkably few war crimes trials for Afghanistan. Viewers of this will be well aware that the US refuses to recognize international criminal courts jurisdiction for the possibility of US officials, US military forces to be put on trial for potential war crimes. Australia at the moment, in the last six months or so, for those who aren't aware, I'll give a very brief summary, have released uh, the Defense Department, the government, released a report which outlined dozens and dozens of Afghan civilians who have been murdered by Australian special forces. And this was a watershed moment in a way. It made people realize that the Afghan, the occupation of, of Afghanistan by Australia and others. And for those who don't know, the Australian forces mostly left in 2014, although there's some people who are going to be leaving soon before the deadline that Biden has set in September. But the idea that you have Australian special forces murdering dozens of Afghan civilians and there's been subsequent reporting of other um, journalists that say there's dozens more that haven't been accounted for in this particular reporting. And what's so concerning and shameful, I guess, about this kind of reporting is are people going to be held to account? 
is an Afghan villager whose father was murdered in front of him, an Afghan child who had his or her parents killed, will they fake, will they get justice? Will they get compensation? Will they get some kind of appropriate way to say, I'm sorry, whatever that looks like. And it seems to me, having reported about this in Australia, and Australia is only one small part of this whole puzzle, that I fear that that won't happen. Just this week, the Australian government announced they're closing our embassy in Kabul. They have said that that makes it incredibly difficult to actually access uh, the ground there to get to gather information for these war crimes trials, if they ever happened. The senior person in charge of these war crimes investigations apparently resigned months ago. And there's an expression that I would use, which is the fix is in. And for those who don't know what that means, it essentially says that the government had no choice but to release this report that detailed huge war crimes. But it's very unclear to me, and I'm frankly pretty skeptical that there's ever going to be serious war crimes trials. And the reason this matters, the reason why this is so important to how we assess the legacy of the Afghan war is, how do we as Westerners, and I'm talking about we collectively, how do we as people living in the West, how do we take responsibility for what's happened? Not everything that's happened in Afghanistan since 2001 is the fault of American troops. I'm not saying that for a second. There is profound culpability by Afghan, Afghan forces, Afghan Taliban, Pakistani Taliban, ISIS. I'm not denying any of that. And I can assure you when I was there, I was very acutely um, aware of how awful the security situation was, obviously for Afghans, but certainly also for Western journalists and Westerners in general. But how we as Westerners treat war crimes in a war that was hailed as a liberating war defines us. That to me is a central part of how we view this war. And I worry that we will fail. And I use the term we collectively, not people on this call, but we in terms of how we view war crimes. How do we, how do we address war crimes? And the US, I might add, is arguably even further behind. There's been no serious investigation into war crimes that's been made public by any US administration. And it's hard to see that happening anytime soon because the US is officially pulling out. We'll get to that in a minute. And what's so remarkable, I think, in the last year or so is what's happened with the conflict since Donald Trump was president. And we'll get to Joe Biden in a minute. So obviously people who are, know this conflict much better than me are aware that the, the Taliban signed a deal with the US government last year it's a deal which seems shaky at best. Um, I support a deal between those forces personally, although I'm not exactly suggesting that I trust either side, just to be clear, it's just a personal view. To me, there is an, an, a necessary reality and people on this call might disagree and I respect that, that to remove foreign forces. Now, foreign support is a different story. And I too fear what will happen to Afghanistan. I too fear that we are leading towards a Vietnam, Saigon, 1975 moment. For those who I'm sure know this, there's a very famous photograph of US forces finally leaving Vietnam in 1975. And they're leaving from the roof of the US embassy. In other words, they're fleeing. And I think that kind of imagery is possibly apt here. I would say one caveat, the US will remain in Afghanistan. And what I mean by that is, although yes, they say they're removing all US forces by 9-11 this year, 
they have not said if they're going to be um, removing contractors. There are currently thousands and thousands of US and foreign contractors in Afghanistan working in that country, not all military, civilian as well. The US has not pledged to remove those contractors. It is quite possible there'll be some kind of special forces, CIA assets in the country who will remain and in neighboring countries. And I fear that the instability, the pressure, the, the violence that will be inflicted on Afghanistan by its neighbors, Pakistan, China, and others, without some kind of comprehensive regional settlement, means that the country will remain indefinitely at, at war. And that matters for a range of reasons. It matters for the obvious reason, which is the fact that there is there are millions of Afghan civilians who have no voice, who have no chance to leave the country, who are going to be suffering. And that to me is a moral failure on its own. And what is the legacy of, of, of us as Westerners, as Australians, as Americans and others who are in the country for 20 years, who have not brought stability? Yes, I do acknowledge and other realities that there has been undoubtedly some improvements in the last um, 20 years. I've seen educational differences. I've seen um, girls educated. I've seen universities built. I've seen new roads. I'm not someone who says nothing has changed in 20 years because it has. There are countless Afghans, including maybe on this call tonight, who would never have got to where they've got despite all the profound challenges that I don't doubt exist without some kind of um, shock, so to speak, of the invasion and the aftermath of that. So I don't deny any of that. I'm not someone who says nothing has changed in 20 years for the better because that simply is a lie. But when we assess the legacy of the war, the legacy has to be seen in what is likely to happen to Afghanistan moving forward. And I fear that although the US, as I said, may well leave some assets in the country, either covertly or otherwise, um, I think there's a real failure of much of the media, my profession, to really hold ourselves to account and our leaders to account. You know, I'm the sort of person who thinks that politicians who send foreign forces into a war that fails miserably should be held to account. I mean, I'd like to name any foreign leader who is being put on trial for war crimes or even senior military figures in Afghanistan or elsewhere for crimes that are committed. I would love to see Afghan voices far more lifted up and heard. And that's one of the reasons I'm doing this project. I'm obviously not Afghan. I don't claim to be Afghan, of course. But I think it's really important that Afghan voices are heard now. Now meaning when the, the war is officially about to end. What does that look like for Afghans in the country? What does it look like for Afghans in the diaspora? And I guess I would leave it for the, at that for now. Happy to answer questions or go into more detail, but I just wanted to, that's my general assessment of the war. And I could say I'm very happy afterwards or whatever to send links to people to see the film I did there and other stories I've written for the press to give people a taste of the kind of work I did there and the work that I've continued to do. So thank you. Thanks, Anthony. Um, Please feel free to type into the chat box if you have a question. Um, alternatively, I'm really happy for you just to unmute um, and, and ask. <laughs> um, 
jump in at any time. Please don't be shy. I will leave a short little pause just to allow time for people. Um, shy, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Um, I I have a question. Shoot. Oh, I, yeah. we, okay. Yes. Did someone else just talk? Can I ask a question? Yeah, Hello. yeah, Ali here. Hi. Yeah, my name, hi. Uh, my name is Ali Karimi. I'm here in uh, Berlin. Hi. I, uh, a very nice talk, Anthony. I enjoyed it. Um, um, my question was that uh, uh, what went wrong in these 20 years when it came to uh, replacing the chaos of the Taliban with a functioning Afghan state? Mm -hmm. They had 20 years of opportunity, not a shortage of money, but uh, I was curious that what is your impression of how the Western powers failed in building a functioning state in Afghanistan to replace them when they are gone, a state that could deliver basic services and protect people's lives? Thank you. Thank you for your question. And that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing people write books about um, and make films about. But I have a few answers, which I'll briefly outline. I think initially the so-called mission was clearer. Namely, we are overthrowing the Taliban. We're trying to get Al-Qaeda. We're trying to get Bin Laden, which, of course, they didn't really do particularly effectively. But putting that issue aside, and very soon, and this is my comment, it's not particularly my opinion, this is what US military figures started saying privately, which was leaked over the years, not least by WikiLeaks and others, people for kind of forgot what they were doing there. When I say, I don't mean literally they forgot, as in the mission became completely disorganized. You had US forces would regularly rotate out of the country every six to 12 months. So you'd have a group of, say, American soldiers, for, for argument's sake, in a particular area or province, and they would maybe build a relationship with local villages or others, but then those people disappear and the new round of troops come in. This is happening over and over and over again. That's one issue. Secondly, there was just the massive overwhelming use of violence by both US forces and obviously some militants as well, where countless civilians were being killed. There was a point, I think it was either last year or the year before, according to the UN, where more Afghans were being killed by foreign forces than local forces, or for that matter, the Taliban or militants. Now, what, is, what message does that send to Afghans when so many of them are being killed, interrogated, whatever it may be? Um, I think there's also a sense, my more cynical reading is, the US never had an interest in building a democratic state. Democracy, now, I'm not suggesting their aim was to build it as it is now, but democracy is never what the US wants. Democracy is not pretty. Democracy does not vote into power people who like what you've done this has happened over and over and over again in the last 50 years look at say iraq iraq is different to afghanistan to be sure since 2003 but the idea of assisting the installation of a functioning afghan government i don't think was ever the aim of the u.s mission now the u.s of course would disagree with that and they'd say well didn't work out that well we did our best thanks for coming see you later well no documents that have been leaked in the last particularly 10 years show a few things. One, the US had no issue. In fact, they encouraged, as did Australia, in partnering, funding, supporting the worst warlords imaginable. So put aside Kabul for a minute. Vast parts of the country, the 
foreign forces routinely worked alongside funded, supported, awful people. Now, what does that say to locals who are either suffering from foreign forces or suffering from the warlord? Why would you as an Afghan civilian, and of course there were some who didn't mind this, it's obviously a nuanced picture, I get that. That to me is part of it. Um, and there was no accountability for failures. Where's the accountability when things didn't go well? The people voted out of power. Where was it? I mean, there was Afghan election after Afghan election, all deeply corrupt elections. The leaders who run the country are A, corrupt, B, didn't win legitimately. But where's the accountability for any of that? It just doesn't exist. So now, 20 years on, the US is mostly leaving and the West is mostly leaving with a non-functioning state that, yes, supports and helps some Afghans, but far from enough. And that, to me, is a recipe for either ongoing armed conflict or what I think is more likely is not if not necessarily a Taliban takeover, certainly inevitably a Taliban controlling more and more of the country. Whether they can take over Kabul is something endlessly discussed. I don't know. But they certainly control much more territory now than at any time since 2001, as people will be aware. What does that say to you about the ability for the Afghan government and military to function? That to me is deeply, deeply worrying. And again, where's the accountability for that? Where are the people who did this being held to account? I don't mean necessarily in a, even a court of law. How about politically? How about in the media? I mean, just finally on this point, one thing that eternally frustrates me is journalists and commentators in the press, I'm talking about in the West now, who supported the war, encouraged the war for years and years and years. There's been no accountability for them. I'm not suggesting you put them in jail. I'm suggesting that there is that their careers have benefited from, from being wrong. In other words, what is the career punishment for people who get everything wrong? The Afghan war, the Iraq war, the war on terror, extraordinary rendition, nothing. So to me, if our, my industry in media encourages and frankly supports people who get not just the wrong prediction, but encourage destructive policies, we've got a problem. Such is why, as you may be not shocked to hear, yes, I'm a journalist, but I'm not a big fan of my industry. <laughs> oh, uh, Hi there. I have a question too. Hi. Uh, hi, thank you so very much. My name is Arif Yakuba. I'm, I'm talking from San Francisco, California. So hi. it's late at night here. For, uh, I know. But, uh, I stay staying up. Uh, because of this wonderful program, I really appreciate uh all you guys that launched this wonderful program. Your talk was very uh, informative. Thank you so much. Uh, I have a question, but first, uh, I, I, I would like to, to tell you a story. I was working as a journalist in Afghanistan back in 2000, from 2005 till 2012, I think, in different provinces, including Kabul, Kandahar, Ghazni province, uh, covering war uh, conflict for the BBC Afghan service. Mm -hmm. But since 2012, I lived in San Francisco, work as a journalist. But I will tell you a story. Um, the story is that uh, when I was in Afghanistan, uh, many Western journalists in Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, were asking local journalists in different provinces to find local Taliban leaders and, and take photos or videos from them for their reports. 
because those kind of stories were very sexy, very, mm. uh, you know, attractive for the Western audiences. Yeah. So what's the point? The point is that many Western journalists, uh, I'm not going to generalize, but, you know, I have realized many Western journalists already had a framework for their mm. reports, for their, you know, uh, for their uh, packages that they were working. But mm. they were asking for examples, asking for somebody just to to fill their framework that already they created in their minds, you know, and that was quite dangerous. I, later on, I realized that that kind of coverage of Afghanistan helped the Taliban to emerge because, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, many Western journalists forgot that they have a, a moral responsibility to uh, you know, they didn't pay attention, maybe unconsciously, or mm. the way they work, or the way the Western audiences are 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 um, uh, are interested in, or the uh, the business models that they have, or you know, uh, they were seeking followers or more mm. watch time on YouTube or who you know whatever. Yeah. But the point is that you know, I think that many Western journalists and many big media, the American mainstream media helped Taliban in the past 20 years uh, to, uh, to emerge and become more powerful and people in the world constantly talk about them. So I would like to know your opinion. What do you think? Uh, do you think that uh, my understanding is, uh, is, is, is uh, accurate or no? Or you have a different point of view? I think and, you, uh, please go mm -hmm. on. Sorry, <laughs> go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, please. No, please. If you want to finish, sorry, I interrupted you. Please go on. Yeah, and 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 the other thing is that you know, I think uh, in Afghanistan, of course, so many things went wrong in Afghanistan, and that's why Afghanistan is uh, struggling after twenty years. But so many things uh, went right, and we had uh, uh, you know so many things. Uh, have changed, you know, the education, the media that yes. we have, for instance, right now in Afghanistan. Yes. But the thing is that, you know, journalists basically uh, don't talk about positive things a lot. As, you know, uh, Stephen Pinger points out in his book that, you know, no, no journalist in the world, you know, goes to in an area or in, in a country or in a province and says, hey, you know, guys, hey, hey wall, you know, for 20 years or 25 years, no war, you know, uh, broke out in this, in this area or no school has been, has been burned, you know, but if one school has been burned in an in area, many journalists would like to talk about that. So I think that's another, another, another factor that helped the Taliban and, 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 and the radical Islamic groups in Afghanistan that, mm -hmm. you know, now, now they are just occupying people's mind, people's yeah. opinion, and, and, and their airtime, everything. So I would like to know your opinion about this mm. as well. So thank you so very much. I'm sorry I talked a lot. I really no, appreciate it. No, no, not at time. all. In terms of your first point, I agree with you disturbingly a lot. <laughs> and one thing that's become very clear to me in the last 20 years, I've been a journalist for 15 or so years, so I obviously wasn't doing this in 2001 when the invasion happened, but I have been doing it for most of the occupation of Afghanistan and Iraq for that matter, is that 
there's a term I mentioned before that some of you will be will have heard of where journalists often go to a place and they're embedded with foreign troops, Americans, Australians, whatever it may be, and they see a very narrow view of the war. Could be Iraq, could be Afghanistan. But I actually think the problem is worse than that. It's an embedding of the mind, which means that journalists, and obviously not all, there are good journalists. I know some of them who have done some great work in Afghanistan who are independently minded. But doing an, doing an, again, you can embed with troops and still do an important work as well, to be clear. But I think that it's important that we remember that so many journalists, and I see this countless times around the world, particularly when reporting on war, I actually think many journalists want to be soldiers. They don't say it. I'm not saying they'd be good soldiers, but there's this weird kind of veneration of the military. There's a deference to the military. There's a sense somehow that regardless of how often the military might lie or tell them untruths or give them a narrow view of the conflict, whether it's in Afghanistan or elsewhere, they will still defer to them. They will, and their coverage shows that. Um, too uncritical towards military aims. I mean, just as an example, briefly, the Washington Post released last year a huge trove of documents which explained what the US military was really saying about the war privately. I didn't say this publicly. Publicly, they were saying it's going well, we're meeting all our targets, etc. Privately, they were saying for years, it's a disaster. It's not working what are we doing here? People are so curious, they can Google that. The Washington Post did a report about it last year. Now, why this matters is that many journalists who reported on the war, they knew that for years. I'm not saying they knew all those military comments, but they knew the reality of the war. And yet still, so much of the coverage you would see, this is across TV, print, online, whatever it may be, radio, not all of it, but a lot of it was still framed around this idea that the West we're just doing our best. You know, it's like a sort of benign colonialism. And in fact, I would argue it was the opposite. I agree with you that there has definitely been massive progress in the last 20 years. There is definitely a civil society in Afghanistan, although it's clearly under a lot of threat at the moment. There's media, community, all that is true, but all it's now under threat. It's all under threat now. And so I guess in your first point, I fundamentally agree because I think the media in general the establishment media anyway, is, and again, this goes back long before 9-11, it's, it's been mostly successfully co-opted by the military. This is not just the US, talking about Europe, the UK, Australia. And yes, as I said, there are good journalists doing good work. So I can't say every journalist, of course, that would be unfair. But I think there is an ideology that goes with it. So many journalists who report on war consistently are not critical of war. They're there in that role because they generally will have close contacts with the military and their coverage reflects that. They're not overly skeptical or critical. To me, what one needs is skepticism. Skepticism, skepticism, skepticism. And too many journalists and media do not display that about any war. And you'd think, and I'll finish on this point, with the 20th anniversary coming up, it'd be sort of a perfect, like media's lo media loves an anniversary. So, you know, 20 years is coming up in a few months. And I can assure you there'll be literally zero reckoning amongst most of the media about the role that they played in the disaster we see now. Yes, they weren't carrying weapons, of course, obviously, but they play, in my view, a deep culpability in what's gone on in Afghanistan. And that reckoning 
has not happened. And I hope in my very small way, I will contribute to that because I think people need to be held to account. There's a question here from Fatima. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, sorry. I just posted um, a question. Would anyone, um, one, be able to translate this question? Um, question. But before we do, we just had a, um, a question from Fatima, um, which I would like to ask first. She posted first. Um, she just said, uh, I'm curious if the situation in Afghanistan became worse from 2014. Um, yeah, the short answer is obviously yes. I mean, you kind of answered your own question. It definitely did. Why? Briefly, um, the insurgency became a lot more successful, in inverted commas, but more organised. There was growing disaffection within Afghan forces that's shown by huge amounts of people leaving, defecting uh, to the Taliban, some ISIS, not a lot, but some. Um, and as these Washington Post leaks reveal last year, it's almost like there's a disconnect between what the US military was saying and what they were doing. Of course, they had huge amounts of forces in the country, billions and billions of dollars worth of equipment, etc. But it's almost like, in a way, they'd lost the will. Because you get to a point where the US was saying, what are we doing here? Like, what are we doing here? What, what, what are we fighting for now? Yes, what they were saying to the media was we're doing a noble job of bringing peace and freedom and democracy. Okay, well, that sounds great, but no one actually believes that. And I think from 2014, it probably started a little bit earlier than that, actually. In the last seven or eight years, you've seen a, on one level, a reduction of US forces. I mean, Obama surged forces, but certainly over the years, it's reduced. And when Trump came in in 2016, he's obviously reduced it and reduced it to the point where we are now, where they're likely to remove, as far as we know, as I said before, most or all US forces by September. So I think there has just been a, an ability also of, yeah, I do see it very much as, and again, it's not just my view, it's what a lot of both militants have been saying and others, that just a lot more organised. And I think also a lot of Afghan forces, from what I understand, not all, but many, don't have great morale. Life is tough. You're not getting paid well. Life is hard. You're often going to be killed by the Taliban. And it's almost like the, the momentum was, has been for years with the other side. Although not everywhere, not always, can't generalise, but in general it was. And I think also in many ways the US was starting to disengage. Again, they weren't saying that publicly, but that's the reality. They were disengaging. And when Trump came in, it almost seemed inevitability. I think he wanted to pull out all forces. It didn't obviously happen. Now Biden's going to do that only a few months after Trump left. So in some ways, what's happening now, for better or worse, is because of Trump, really, in many ways. So that's, I guess, my answer to that. Yeah. I wonder, by the way, if Cardi wants to say anything about anything. <laughs> he doesn't have to say anything at all, but... Well, there, please keep going. I'm really enjoying what you're okay. saying. And also love the engagement of the other audience. Here. Yeah, yeah, and sure, sure. My talk would be totally different at the end. But, um, <laughs> but I'm really enjoying what you're saying. Thank sure. You. Pleasure. Um, Salem, Salem has a has a question. Uh, is, I, before, before I we have, uh, sorry. 
Before we go to Salem, was anybody able to translate that question? I can give a rough translation if that's possible. Rough is fine. <laughs> yeah, that is uh, the question is from Ali Hazara in Paris, and he has a very good question. He says that we never hear about the American civil society's reaction to the ongoing Afghan war. We hear uh, in history books and uh, in the past about how American people, the civil society organizations, reacted and came on the streets against the America's war in Vietnam. There, there was a big a culture of anti-war protest back then. But now we don't know what is the perception of general uh, American public and their civil society towards mm -hmm. the Afghan war. Um, and that's a very good question, that why um, we don't see Americans on the street protesting uh, the war in Afghanistan. Yeah. I think, thank you so much for that question. It's a great one. I'll answer that as briefly as I can. There's a few reasons, I think, for that. One, for the vast, vast bulk of Americans, the Afghan war doesn't, doesn't impact them. Literally, it has zero impact. It barely gets coverage in the media. Very few American forces are now based in Afghanistan. It feels like something distant, far away in the past. Didn't that finish years ago? 9-11 was a long time ago. Whatever. That attitude, I think, is there. Secondly, let's not forget that Afghanistan for a long time was framed as the so-called good war, as opposed to Iraq, which was the bad war. When Obama was running in 2008, he explicitly said that. I was against the Iraq war, but the Afghan war, that was a good war. We're going to support that war. And in fact, his so-called support was putting, I would say disastrously, far more American forces in the country, which worsened the insurgency, not, made, not reduced violence. In fact, it worsened violence. I think thirdly, there is frankly, a great deal of racism about this issue, as there is towards Iraq, as there is towards people of Muslim faith who are not living in Western countries. There is, obviously, I'm not saying all Americans are racist, not at all. I'm saying that there's a great deal of racism post 9-11, although it existed long before, towards people of colour, people who are brown and black and foreign and Muslim or Christian or whatever they may be, who are not Western. And you see that because that's reflected in how so many Western countries treat Afghan and Iraqi and Syrian refugees. What is that except racism? It's not said to be racism by the government, but it's racism. And we all know that if, for example, there were lots of, I don't know, British refugees flooding into, say, France or Germany, they'd be treated very, very differently than Afghans are treated or Iraqis or Syrians or whoever it may be. And there is an anti-war movement in uh, the US. It's there, it's relatively small. There was always a much stronger anti-war movement in relation to Iraq than Afghanistan, sadly. And there are, for example, a number of American, former American soldiers who have spoken out about what they saw during the war, what they did during the war. And I really admire those people because they often said that they bought the lie after 9-11, they went into the, conflict with their maybe eyes closed and then got to the country and realized that it was a bit of a disaster and they've often spoken out but not enough so i think there's some of the reasons but i would love the idea of there being a larger anti-war movement and that's relevant now because not if but when there's another war in afghanistan in somewhere else 
you need a strong anti-war movement because without that, it's far too easy for politicians to send forces into a country. And I worry that without some kind of organising now before who knows where the next war will be, it's, yeah, it's hard to do that so quickly without building up those forces for first. There's one question here. Please ask if they say, hmm, please, please ask if they say it's a good war for democracy and human rights. What about post-war and Taliban? The Taliban, I, I presume um, you mean the Taliban don't believe in human rights and democracy. Well, that's absolutely correct. And this is something that concerns me and concerns a lot of people. Look, I've got no simple answer to this because there is no simple answer. I think there is a... I mean, what I think about the Taliban is not particularly relevant. I mean, I wouldn't be, want to be ruled by them. I, don't, I wouldn't trust what they say now in relation to justice, accountability, treating women well. I don't at all. Uh, not that my view is particularly relevant here because I don't live in Afghanistan, but I worry about what's going to happen next. Although I might add, it's not like the current Afghan government is particularly accountable when it comes to crimes either. And yes, in some parts of the country, um, women are treated much better than in other parts. They're not at all. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think some kind of so-called power sharing deal between the Taliban and some kind of Afghan government is possible. I mean, to me, there's only really two outcomes here. It's that or the Taliban take over. I don't see what, the, what a third option is. Um, or I guess civil war where there's no, no real government at all. It's just sort of a shambolic, never-ending conflict. But in terms of a government, which is why I think there needs to be ongoing Western support, not military, Western support uh, through education, uh, healthcare support. And I think it's possible that parts of a Taliban are more open to that than they would have been 20 years ago. That's not a defense of a Taliban. That's simply to say that they are more aware that they need to take some kind of Western support to deal with healthcare and education, et cetera. And yes, as she just said, Taliban and war criminals have killed thousands. Undeniably true. So they need to be held to account too. I don't deny that for a second. Question is where and how. It won't happen within Afghanistan. Is it going to happen outside of Afghanistan? Maybe the occasional, you know, former warlord might be held to account in The Hague, the International Criminal Court. It hasn't happened yet, but it's possible. Um, I mean, think about the war in Syria. It's been going on for 11 years and only now there's a handful of Syrian officials who are being held to account in Germany, a handful, which I welcome. And the death toll in um, Syria probably is anywhere between three to 600,000 civilians killed. Uh, in terms of Afghanistan, I didn't actually say this before because no one really knows the civilian death toll. My understanding is it's anywhere between one to 200,000. No one knows, actually, because the UN, A, didn't start counting in 2001 and stopped counting a few years ago. So no one actually really knows. It's very high. It's not as high maybe as Iraq, which is probably anywhere between one to two million, but it's incredibly high. And I mean, what a... So, yeah, we are burdened by a lack of justice in so many conflicts, and it, it pains me deeply. Um, thanks, Anthony. Uh, Salem, 
Would you like to ask your question? Um, Sorry, thank you for your patience. <laughs> it's a great, great discussion. Right. Yeah. Uh, hi, Anthony. Uh, I'm hi. from Afghanistan, currently living in Perth, Western Australia. Oh, I am sorry that I missed you because I was in the traffic and didn't get home early. The question that I want to ask you is that as an expert, today when I opened my Facebook, I found out about the closure of Australian As a refugee, I have family in Poland and that deeply worries me. And the message that it sends to the public so sorry to interrupt you. I actually can't actually hear. It's sort of breaking up a little bit here and there. I can't actually can't really hear your question. Sorry. No, that's a shame. Can you hear me now? Maybe speak straight. I think it's maybe a connection, but maybe just speaking to the microphone. Yeah, that would be that would be wherever the microphone is. That would be great. Thanks. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's maybe the connection. Can you hear me now? Yeah. yeah. Try that. Try that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a bit better. Yeah. I don't know how much of the question, how much of my question was, you know, <laughs> did you hear anything? Just start again, just start okay. again. So today when I was, um, uh, check, when I checked my Facebook, I found out about the um, closure of the Australian embassy in, in Kabul. Yes. So as a refugee that I am living here without my family, all of my family lives in Afghanistan, both in Kabul and Ghazni. So what worries me is this, that what, could this possibly, well, you know, the, the message that it sends to the general public, to the civil society, that, you know, the Western knows not only leaves, um, not only the, you know, Western troops leaves their country, but also the embassy. And once the embassy leaves, I mean, the legitimacy of the government is no longer the case here, you know? It is no longer a government because even they, they cannot trust with the people to have an open embassy in, in a capital of a city. Mm. country so what do you think is going to happen in afghanistan like it is worrying like is it really west is going to you know leave everybody and close up pack their backs and go yeah you're asking me to get inside the head of joe biden which is not a very pretty thing to do but um i don't think that'll happen I mean, as in every single Westerner disappears from Afghanistan on 9-11 this year, I don't think that'll happen. I think what Australia is likely to do is to have a presence inside the US embassy at some point. The US embassy will almost certainly remain. I mean, I can't guarantee that, obviously, but I think it's likely the US certainly wants it to remain. Whether that works, of course, is impossible to predict, but I think they want to remain there. I'm very concerned about the closure of the Australian embassy. They say it's temporary. I'll believe that when I see it. I don't, I don't really believe that, but maybe that's true. Um, I mean, the fear is, of course, as you'd know better than me, that for the idea that Afghans in Afghanistan would need to go to, say, Pakistan to what have an interview for, for example, a, a, a visa is just in, absurd. I mean, that's just not going to happen, is it? And you know that better than me. So... I don't think it's likely that every single Western uh, embassy disappears on 9-11 this year. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and there's no indication. They haven't said that they will. The US says they intend to stay as an embassy. And I think the Australians are probably likely to have a presence in their embassy or a much smaller Australian embassy in Kabul. Again, it's so hard to predict, isn't it? Because... Yeah. If a security situation worsens, which I fear it will, then 
it's almost like what's going to happen, I fear, is like what's happened for years in Iraq with the US, where the US has an insanely massive embassy in Baghdad, but it's like a, it's just a fortress. <laughs> you know I mean, I mean, yes, they're there, but they can't really leave unless they have to, you know, they have to fly in and out by helicopter. I mean, what a way to, to be based in a country. So I don't know. I think Australia will come back in some small way but I'm worried about for the reasons you say for, for families like yours and the ability for the Australian government to investigate war crimes committed by us, by Australians, yeah. which the government already has said, yes, that makes it a bit more difficult. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I mean, how's that going to work? True. So, yeah, it's, it's worrying. I wish I had no, I have no, simp- I wish I could say something that makes you feel better about that, but I don't, I don't think, Westerners are disappearing entirely in three, four months. I don't think that's going to happen. Thanks, Andrew. Pleasure. Uh, hi, Anthony. Can I have a question? Please. Yeah, uh, I'm Asad uh, from Sweden. Uh, thank you for a very good uh, presentation for today. Thank you. And my question is, what do you think about Pashtun's elite uh, in establishing of government in Afghanistan, uh, what do you think? Uh, do they believe, for example, Ashafani and uh, his and the people and his around? Do they believe in democracy, or they just want to invest time to bring Taliban back? If they don't believe in democracy, so what's the task of uh, people like you as a journalist? Uh, to talk about that elite people that uh, bring Afghanistan to back to the uh, Pashtun political system. Hmm. Thank you. Does Ghani believe in democracy? Well, I can't get inside his head, but history would suggest not really. He has... His family is deeply corrupt. That's not me saying that. I can send people, like there's so much evidence about family members getting contracts and brothers getting mining contracts. I mean, the family, which doesn't mean he is necessarily, to be sure, but there's a lot of questions around his family. Um, He arguably stole two elections. If you ask me what I see my role in this is, it's not necessarily just to kick him while he's down, so to speak. I think his main game at the moment is to stay alive. I don't think he wants the Taliban to take over. I don't think he wants the Taliban. I think he fears for his life. I think he fears he will be killed if the Taliban take over. And frankly, he's probably right. I think someone like it is hard to see someone like Ghani lasting there as leader a long time. It, I don't know. I, it's, it's hard to see him lasting for years and years as president. I don't know who's going to replace him, but it's hard to see it's being him. Or for that matter, Abdullah Abdullah, his sort of, well, I don't know what, I'm trying to think of the word, his apparent partner in government, but kind of also political enemy. So, yeah, I, I think... And again, there hasn't really been any serious interest in much of the West to help build a democracy. I don't think there has been for years. Maybe there was at some point early on, but that, that, that ended years ago. And the effect of it is where we are now. 
that the government is essentially a corrupt shell that, yes, does benefit some people, as I said before, and, yes, does provide some services to some people. It's not completely useless, but it's, yeah, it, yeah, it's an incredibly unaccountable government and I, it's hard to see it having a long future as it is now. Thanks, Anthony. Oh, um, can I, um, sorry. Uh, no, you're okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm just aware of the time. Um, I'm really okay. happy to take one more question if you are, Anthony. Sure. Is that okay? okay? Yes, yes. This is just one question, sorry. Um, I was thinking that, uh, wondering that if this 20 years of international involvement in Afghanistan was uh, uh, a, a joint military exercise or military hardware testing or testing the, the mental strength or capacity of the army on the actual war ground rather than in a, a virtual war. It looks like that, you know, there, there's no intention of development or improvement in the infrastructure in Afghanistan because they, you know, like you said, the government, the present government or the president, they uh, are not elected by the people of Afghanistan, They're elected by someone else. I don't know who, but uh, uh, if you could- Washington. Uh, you know, <laughs> if you could put a little bit of insight on that, was that yeah. uh, look like a, a, a military exercise? Thank you, Cardian, for that question. I don't think the Afghan war was solely about that, nor was the Iraq war. I think that certainly what has happened though in the last 20 years has been the US hugely developing, testing a great deal of weapons. And there's an argument to be made, I think a very convincing one, this war has arguably continued for so long, partly, not solely, partly because huge numbers of defence contractors and defence corporations wanted it to. In other words, for them, ending the war is bad for business. It's always bad for business. And when Trump won in 2016, the share prices of defence companies went through the roof. It's not accidental. There's a reason for that. And... Where And as similarly to Iraq and Afghanistan, a range of technologies from drones to missiles to a range of other technologies that are tested and then sold around the world, both to other countries and also to other Americans. It's exactly what Israel does in, in Palestine. I've done a lot of work over the years in Palestine. I'm Jewish, although I'm deeply critical of Israeli behavior and Israeli actions. And a lot of what Israel does is very similar to what the US does in its own wars which is develop, build, and test weapons, often on people of colour, Palestinians, Afghans, Iraqis, and others. And then they can sell those to others saying, and they use this term, so-called battle-tested, because that's what it is. Um, if people find that hard to believe, I'm actually writing a book about this at the moment, but also people can Google, there's lots of stuff written about it, that increasingly I think war, to some extent, is a testing ground. Not, I think, as I said, that... Americans, for example, launched the war in Afghanistan solely to test a new drone. I think Americans post 9-11 launched the war for one reason, revenge, to say, don't screw with us. You want to screw with us? We're going to screw with you. And Iraq was exactly the same rationale. This is how, you, this is how empires think. You screw with us, we're going to screw you back harder. That's, 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 that's the logic of empire. 
and it's not unique to the US. And they thought Afghanistan was going to be an easy war. They thought Iraq was going to be an easy war. So, yes, I agree with you to the extent that I think partly these wars are about testing, developing and honing weapons, but also I think a way of thinking that every empire needs endless war. That's what fuels empires and the US is an empire. It needs wars to sustain itself, to keep on building, developing weapons, to have a massive high defense department budget. I mean, the Pentagon budget, I don't know the exact figure to a dollar, but it's roughly $750 billion per year. That is a lot of money for wars that the US has basically lost every single war it's fought for decades. I'm not saying therefore it'd be good if America in commas won the war, but I'm saying because of the logic of insurgencies, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, the name, the list goes on. America's lost basically every war it's fought for decades. And yet it doesn't stop it continuing to go to war. And in years to come, there'll be some other rationale for the next war. Where? Who knows? Iran or somewhere else. And to me, until there is a greater anti-war voice and vote against those kinds of conflicts, they will keep on happening. It's a bit of a depressing way to end. But that's, I, that's what I think. And uh, it can be different, but there needs to be much more public outrage about it, including about the war in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. I have a, a short question, if you have time, Anthony. Sure. Uh, so I think, you know, when it comes to Afghanistan, it's not that like a simple case for Joe Biden or his team uh, or for any, anybody who needs to make a decision for mm. Afghanistan. Mm. So I'm going to ask you a hypothetical question. Mm. If you were Joe Biden, what would you do about Afghanistan? And my, my uh, hypothetical question is, uh, if you were Ashraf Ghani, completely a hypothetical question. You're a journalist, you write books, you do, you know, you write constantly, you travel to Afghanistan, you understand, I think, you know, these things in a deep level, in all details. So I think it's not a crazy question if I ask you hypothetically, if you were Ashraf Bani Ahmad Zai, uh, in this sensitive time, what would you do? In his case, I'd run. I mean, I say that half jokingly, but um, I do not see any good end for him. At all. I don't mean, just to be clear, I wish him ill. I don't. Um, I don't like him, but I don't wish him harm. But I, I just do not see any good outcome for him in Afghanistan. I just, I do not. He might hang on in power for a while. I've got no idea, of course, but I don't really see. He doesn't represent the people. He does not speak for people. He is an isolated leader and virtually all Afghans, so even those who used to support him will say that. So what, what should he do? leave the stage gracefully, which he won't do. But uh, yeah, I, I, it's hard to see him being um, having a very positive future in Afghanistan. And don't forget, he has a passport so he can leave the country and I suspect will at some point in the coming years. As for Biden, what would I do if I was him? It is no doubt an incredibly difficult decision. I don't for a second suggest it's easy. I do think a reduction or removal of US forces is important, 
But I do think alongside that, there needs to be a massive injection, far bigger than there is, of some kind of humanitarian aid and it needs to be far better spelled out. What does it mean for the US to leave? Both on the ground in Afghanistan, healthcare, education, women's rights, media freedom, civil society freedom, that's part of it. And secondly, as I said before, where is the accountability for the crimes that have been committed by Afghan forces, Taliban, and for that matter, US and foreign forces? These have to happen at the same time. Now, that all sounds probably very unlikely and it probably won't happen, but I think a responsible leader would address that. And the legacy of the war is that they're without accountability, these kinds of wars keep on happening because people do not see any, any, any punishment for those who have misbehaved, who have caused pain, who have caused harm. So that's what I would do. If I was Joe Biden, I would never be elected president if I had the views that I have. And I've accepted that. But it's, yeah, there's a different way to do it. And I wish those voices were louder. So I'll keep on saying it. And there are others. I don't for a second 